listening to the Colorado Springs Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by the Envision Advisors at Your Castle Real Estate. Hey everyone, welcome back to another podcast episode. So today is going to be a special and in-depth episode. Jenny is going to walk us through the 2021 Guide to Colorado Springs Real Estate Investing. So Jenny, glad to have you on here. Same here. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so this is going to be a very uh, data-heavy uh, episode. And the goal with this, this is actually the, the chapter that Jenny wrote into the 2021 Investing Guide we publish every year. And our thought process here is every year we're going to publish a, you know, a, a report every year, a state of the market report as to what's going on in the current market, trends we're seeing, current deals, opportunities, threats, and just a general overview of the market to be a great starting point. So we will give you the high level in this episode, but definitely check out the book or uh, the show notes. We have the exact same chapter in the book on the blog as well. Check out the book or the blog for all the details, numbers, reference to their podcast episodes. It's going to be a meaty episode because we're going to talk about market trends, then go through a few deal analyses on single family rentals, multifamily rentals, answer a common question of, can you still burr in the springs market? And then go through and talk about the type of reserves you need to hold in your properties, and then fix and flipping, and also fix and listing, and then finally house hacking. So Jenny, this will take us like four minutes to go through. Yeah, we'll, we'll maybe me 40. <laughs> <laughs> we'll speed right through it. All right, so take it away. All right, so. Um, just to kind of go into kind of the backbone for Colorado Springs. Um, I have said this before, but just kind of reiterating that I'm a pretty strong believer in the economy. I think it's very strong. I think it's very diverse. So that lends itself really well to investing. Um, some of the main, uh, types of economics that we're looking at is one is the military and defense presence, of course, and then also tourism. And then lastly, we're getting a lot of tech firms in. So Amazon's making a big push uh, down there. They're, they're opening up a couple uh, distribution centers. We have, uh, it's called Peak Innovation Park, I think is what it's called, as a new um, uh, facility that's going in near the airport as well. So it's a lot of huge development projects um, for different industries that are coming in. So I'm pretty excited to see where that goes. And one of the things I always look for, you know, I'm a, I'm a keep it simple, stupid guy, mm -hmm. is it's just things are either growing or shrinking. Yep. And the springs, I mean, it's growing. Population is growing still, right? Exactly, yeah. Uh, and industry and jobs are growing, right? Exactly, yeah. And we just need more inventory to grow down, right? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the, not, not to spoil the anything, thing but- that's uh, going on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of a person where, you know, it, it, these companies spend millions of dollars in research of where they're going to put these uh, new construction projects for for them to to enter to the city. So I'm just going to follow where they're going. I I don't have that sort of you know capacity to to do all this myself. It's kind of like the Starbucks model: buy where they're putting in Starbucks. Um, so same thing for this. I've been telling uh, a lot of our clients, focus on the airport side of things. Um, I think that's where a lot is going to start growing. Um, so one of my analogies I, I use for Denver is just, you know, like a rising tide lifts all ships. And you know, overall, I think, you know, most of Denver, you invest anywhere, you're, you're going to be happy in the next 10, 20 years. Mm -hmm. Is that a similar trend of thought for the Springs? I'm mean, obviously like, I think the Springs is growing. Like, is that 
a similar thought? Are there other pockets you like, hey, that we should see higher growth in these areas? How would you uh, quantify that down the springs? That's a good question because I find myself telling most people that say, hey, what do you think about this? I always have something good to say about whatever area that that property is in because you know to keep things simple the whole city is experiencing a ton of growth so you're not going to go wrong in my opinion um investing down here there are probably some areas that are more poised for stronger appreciation over the next couple of years and i've been kind of helping people uh on my best guess as to where that might be but i think all around is there's growth happening uh, um, circumference for the entire city. So okay, and any any areas in particular that you generally tell people to stay away from or avoid? No, I don't think so. Okay, nope. Mm -mm. So we have a chart here that uh, is describing the growth, and I know that everyone who's been listening to our our monthlies knows that I'm a broken record. We have no inventory and prices are, are jumping up. So <laughs> um, they're basically just referencing that uh, the historical rate of appreciation is about five to 6% per year. Um, as of third quarter last year, we were up 16% on single family homes. And I believe that we ended at 18% by the end of the year. And I'm very curious to see what Q1 2021 ends up being because I would imagine it's going to be even higher than that. Yeah. And does that scare you? Cause I mean, you're, you're an investor yourself, you're mm -hmm. a buy and hold. Does that, does that scare you and say, Hey, the market's so hot. I should sit out for a bit. Like how should an investor, whether they're a, you know, a brand new investor mm -hmm. um, or, you know, they've got already existing portfolio. How do you interpret that to investing recommendations? So great question. I think if I were a little bit uh, more novice, I would be scared. But having been in this for five years, I feel as if the reasoning behind the the price jumps that we've been seeing are sound to me. So without my crystal ball, I I invested. Uh, I I bought two properties in January, so I'm still investing down there, even though the prices are a lot higher than what I've previously bought properties for. The, the numbers still work. I'm still making a really good return on these properties. I ha am a firm believer that they're going to continue to grow in value and cash flow. Um, so as long as you know it meets your investing criteria, I, I wouldn't try to time the market. I wouldn't try to guess what's going to happen six months from now. We don't know. If it works for you today, you should, you should act on it. That's kind of my thought for that. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. And then just going down inventory, same old story. This one ended uh, Q3 last year at 900 units. It's a bit of a different story now. I think we ended January or February with uh, 400 units or something. <laughs> something so wild. So inventory is compressed even more since this. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it, it, it's a free-for-all. It's been extremely competitive. The offers that we've been seeing have had um, huge appraisal gaps, huge price uh, jumps from their listed price. Uh, people are just... Um, yeah, clamoring for properties. So it's it's very interesting. I've never seen anything like it before. Um, and then just for context, a balanced market is four to six months of inventory. Um, end of Q3 2020, we're at 0.7 months of inventory. And probably in the first part of this year so far, we're at, I think it was like 0 0.2, 0 0.3 if I remember from our monthly podcast. Yeah, something really small. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we're talking 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 
zero point two three, and a balance mark is four to six months. Yes. So it is a huge discrepancy there. Yes. And I think you know if if anyone can tell into the future, I'd be curious to see at what point are we ever going to be balanced or even close to balanced. Um, it's just the sellers have such an upper hand right now. It's it's very interesting. Um, and I know we've talked about it before, but if if you own a home in this market and you're considering what the best strategy is in terms of pivoting your equity, I, th- I think that if selling selling it is a definitely a contender um, at this point, 1031 it into something bigger and better, I think, because you will have no issue getting that property sold. And since you have the months of inventory up here, this slide up here we're looking at, do you have any data on like the, in, in your guide here on the, on the foreclosures that Colorado has? Have you, I don't mm-hmm. think you do. Cause let's talk, I mean, cause I, you know, we've talked about with Joe Massey about mm-hmm. that. Um, and even if, you know, those foreclosures from the forbearances happen, which will, you know, not going to be a whole lot. Do you think that's going to move the needle on the inventory? I don't, I, I, have really enjoyed his uh, perspective on that. And Mm -hmm. I feel as if it's probably going to be the same story down, down Colorado Springs. Yep. And then even showings have seen a huge uptick. Um, We're looking at 11 showings per, per listing at the end of Q3. Uh, And then I believe that this year is even Lon had to like skew his dra- graph a little bit <laughs> to fit the plot on here. Um, Cause it was up like in the 18, 19 range, right? Yeah, it was just a tiny bit below Denver's uh, showings per, per unit. And the reason is the same story is just that there's not enough inventory. So all those shoppers that are looking have to see the same home. Um, as, as other shoppers. And so the last couple of years, I mean, you know, we're, we're recording this right in the, in February timeframe, or I guess, you know, February, March timeframe now. And so a lot of times in this time of the year on seasonality, Springs has been between 10 and 12 showings per property the mm-hmm. last, you know, four years. Now going into 2021, uh, we're right around 18. So that is going from 10 to 12 to 18. So that is a big increase. Um, and so that is just kind of showing us what a big increase that is. And I've heard stories from you, Jenny, and you, and uh, and Leah down there just, hey, sometimes you schedule a showing and you're you're literally in, in line waiting out the door, right? Yeah, I felt like I'm in Disney World or something. There's a queuing system where everyone's and their agent is just kind of spread out throughout the, you know, the yard and the driveway and the sidewalks, just waiting their turn to go in. It's Can't very... you buy a fast pass? The front line? <laughs> right. Exactly. Maybe, maybe if you offer enough, you can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a site for sure. So yeah, just kind of putting some dollars behind the crunch that we're seeing. Um, the, the median sales price in El Paso County in June of 2020 was 360. Um, 360,000, which as we mentioned, it was in the low 300s, uh, a year prior to that. So it's a really big jump. Um, but it's interesting though, because I think for many buyers, it's the same affordability perspective because interest rates are so much lower than they were, uh, a year, a year before then. So you can afford uh, a higher priced home for the same monthly payment. So I think that is kind of helping push things up as well. Um, and then just something that my personal perspective, if we're looking at the median price being 360 K for, uh, to purchase a property, I advised looking about $1,600 a month in rent 
Um, and the reason for that is because uh, if you were to, to kind of back into what a tenant could afford, if we're looking at 60K being um, the, the average household income, so that comes to about $5,000 a month divided by the three times rent rule, we're at about 1600 mm. So that's kind of where I came up with that. It's a good way to look at it. Yeah. And I'll have to look into it because I heard that uh, the median household income for Colorado Springs jumped up. Um, so maybe I might be revising this rule a little bit. So, but, I mean, that's not a hard and fast rule, right? I mean, something no. you buy, hey, I can rent this for $1,800. You don't kill it because oh, of that, Oh, right? absolutely not. You just have to realize that your tenant pool is just a tiny bit lower. And that's it. Yeah, so, I, mean, I think the the townhouse you bought. What'd you rent that for? Seventeen hundred. So above yep. the sixteen hundred mark. <laughs> yep, exactly. So, and I was totally fine with it. Um, so we had a little bit less uh, inquiries, but we got a solid tenant within a week. So I I would still call that pretty good. Oh yeah. <laughs> um. So, and another thing that we've been noticing is that the rent prices. Uh, are increasing at a faster rate than the 3% national average. We're averaging about 4% year over year. Um, and then home values are increasing at an even faster rate. So 4% per year is the national average for that. Uh, we're at about five to six historical. As I just mentioned, it was 16% as of Q3 last year. So that's a pretty big um, jump. So that's, I think, what's causing a little bit of it being a little bit more difficult to find a cash flowing rental property is because those rents just aren't jumping at that same price at the purchase prices. And I have a, you can probably look on the show notes. I have a little chart showing if you were to buy a home and hold it for five years, if the rent were to grow at the same rate um, that we just mentioned the 4%. And then if the value of the property were to, to grow at that 7%, average how much longer it would take if you were to wait to buy a property so in terms of gross rent multiplier so i'm gonna say this was a side note when you mentioned the show notes i want to uh something that we're starting to do with the podcast now is we are upping our our youtube game as well so since you know a podcast like this another one since there's a lot of data and charts <laughs> you can listen to it read the blog post or if you want to go to the youtube channel and we have all the charts up here while we're talking about it as well yeah all right so going into our first subtopic single family rental property investing i got one more question on trends for you before yeah we move on yeah to the next section absolutely <clears throat> so we so we talked about the general market right now as far as the way things are going. Are there any major red flags on the horizon from data that would that give you pause or consideration in, in what we're going through right now between the market conditions and of course COVID? Anything that's concerning you right now? No, I'm, I'm not really concerned about much. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with my thoughts on reserves and contingencies, which we'll go into as well, but that and in uh, congruence with just the market as it is, I'm uh, I'm feeling pretty positive about it going forward for this year, for sure. Great, yeah. thank you. Mm -hmm. All right, so single family rental property investing. I'm a little partial to it. It is probably my uh, favorite niche. So, <laughs> um, so we are including within single family rentals, condos, townhomes, and single family homes. So that's going to all be lumped in within single family rentals. 
So just kind of going into to what we mentioned earlier, just we're seeing huge growth in median sales price. Um, we've already talked about that. Uh, again, it's it's stronger than the national average, which I think is also a, a good metric to compare it to as well. But going into more specifics in terms of rent trends, um, it's kind of interesting that uh, there, there was a report that came out uh, from uh, the Apartment Association of Southern Colorado that said buildings with 9 to 50 units had the highest vacancy rates at just shy of 6%. And then buildings with 0 to 8 units had the lowest vacancy rate of 0%. Which is almost unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're in a small apartment building or a single family home, you can basically have one person leave and one person come the next day to, to fill that vacancy if you're if you operate in that manner. Um, and yeah, just I mean, I, I realize I have a very, very small sample of the total population, but that's the same thing that we've been seeing for our single family homes is just um, very, very high demand still for rental. Um, and then, yeah, so another thing that's compounding that impact is that only 11 new apartment units were added to the inventory levels in Q2 of 2020. Units or buildings? Units. So like 11 <laughs> so places maybe, to rent. Yes, in terms of uh, apartment complexes so i'm well, guessing got, got the variety out there for yeah sure, right? yeah <laughs> that's horrible yeah so I, I if i had to guess i would imagine that developers are probably going to look to mitigate this soon um at least i would if if i was in that scene i think i, I think that would be a very good opportunity um and then another thing is that during covid uh, only 5% of renters in Colorado Springs were delinquent and making rent payments. Um, so that's pretty good. I yeah, think. I mean, that's not huge off of just normal times either. Yeah, very true. <laughs> um, so then just going into underwriting Colorado Springs rental properties, I know uh, this is something that you're pretty passionate about, the 1% rule. Uh, I love the 1%. <laughs> I know back in the day, you know, five years ago, you could get pretty darn close to 1% rule. Now you cannot. It's like the half percent rule. Um, and that's pretty decent at that point. Um, so just something to consider. And I think that, yes, it's a good metric. It, it makes sense um, as to, you know, why that metric is popular and everything. But something to consider for Colorado Springs is that it offers a lot of benefits that uh, you're not necessarily going to see in general for most properties that meet the 1% rule. Um, cause if you're going to meet the 1% rule, it's mostly a cash flowing opportunity. Whereas in Colorado Springs, we've kind of shifted away from cash flow more so on long-term appreciation, wealth building, debt pay down, all that good stuff. Um, and also I feel as if it's important to note that we have really low property taxes that goes into your expenses. Um, right now the vacancy rate is extremely low that goes into your revenue. So I think that those features are really important to note that, you know, even though it doesn't meet the 1% rule, it still has a lot going for it. So you mentioned property taxes. So I got a, I got a curveball. I'm going to put you on the spot. Uh -oh. with. Okay. What about the, the repealing of the Gallagher amendment last year, which I, you know, I, I've read some very high level stuff on what it'll do. And that's not going to take effect until really 
we get until 2022, okay. my math right. Any idea how much that might increase property type you read? Because I've seen some rears articles floating around for Denver, but I've seen nothing for the Springs yet. Have I, you seen any? I have not seen any specifics. I've only basically read the cursory, yeah. uh, you know, content for that as well. So I, I'm not sure. So that's a good, that's a good point. Um, I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, so if anyone in Colorado Springs yeah. is an expert on that. Please, Please reach yeah. out so we can, <laughs> you can educate us and other list, other people out there in the Springs. <laughs> be very helpful. I do know that my property taxes this year went up only a tiny bit from the previous assessment. So I was pretty happy with that. And then 50% rule. This is just another general rule that, uh, that you'll see out there on the internet. Um, 50% of your rental income has to go towards operating costs. We see about 30% going towards operating costs in, in this area. Um, same as Denver. So for those of you that are, are, you know, consuming this visually, we have a chart up here that just kind of has some of the inputs that we do for our cursory analyses. Um, as Chris always says, does it pass the sniff test? Pop these numbers in, see if it works. And then if it works, and if we're able to get it under contract at that point, we would use that as the opportunity to do a deep dive to get a more clear sense of, of what your figures are gonna look like. So this is a condo example. Um, we can we can go into each one if- Yeah, let's just do a quick, quick like high level, just kind of the rough numbers, not a detail. Cause I know some of these we've actually done in-depth podcast on. Yes. And I don't know if you remember recall which ones we've done podcasts <laughs> on, but we'll, we'll, we'll give you the, the quick high level, just some rough numbers and cap rates. So you guys get a feel for down payments, operating costs, cash flow, all that stuff. And then in the show notes, we will link to the actual episode if we have more details. Yeah, so we actually, uh, I believe that this is on the single family uh, rental podcast in detail. So just kind of skipping to the details that you mentioned, um, just kind of going across the top. We have a, the condo example purchase price of 102,500, cash on cash return of 5.8%, cash flow before taxes about 1,800, cap rate 5.9%, and then net operating income of 6,000. And for all of these examples, are these all assuming a 25% down payment, do you know? 25% for the condo and then 20% for the townhome and uh, detached single family. Okay. Yeah. Great. So the condo is going to be the lowest priced asset you can buy. Um, so, you know, what, 102000 purchase price, so $25,000 down payment. So all in for, what, $30,000 with some closing costs? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So we're all in for about 31000 And then we have a townhome example as well. All in for about 57000 Uh Purchase price of two hundred thirty k Cash on cash, 4.2%. Cash flow before taxes, about 2400 Cap rate, 5.4%. And net operating income of about 12500 And then going into single family rental, as you can tell this was a, a little bit dated of an example because I have yet to see a single family home in the last couple months, two, two, three months at, at this price point. It's been, it's been kind of wild. Um, so cash on cash, 2.1%, uh, purchase price 220. I think I might've skipped over that. So 220 times 20%, you'll be all in for what? 50 some thousand dollars. Yep. 56. 50, okay. Mm -hmm. 56,000 dollars. 
20% down payment, 2.1% cash on cash, $100 a month in cash flow, mm -hmm. and a 5% cap rate, and $11,000 in LI. Yep. So, I mean, those are still, I mean, I know they're not what we saw a year or two ago, but <laughs> the cap rates are still higher than the interest rates, yeah. which is one of those important things. Exactly. And I think it's just kind of interesting to, to take a look at these three examples uh, from kind of a zoomed out perspective. Condos and townhomes, they're seeing a little <clears throat> bit less appreciation in comparison to the single family rentals, but we're, you know, we're talking in the teens for both of them. So it's all relative at that point. Um, and then of course, with your single family rental, you're going to have a little bit more autonomy as you, as you manage this property, because you're not going to have um, an HOA. So some people like HOA, some people don't. I think it's just kind of important to, um, you know, show all, all different types of options for investors. What's your, you got a thought on this, Jenny, because this is something I often talk about with people and say, I, I don't know the answer, but here's just, you know, me thinking out loud with you is, sure. you know, detached homes a lot of times do have, you know, historically better appreciation. Mm -hmm. But then you look at some condos and townhomes and they're, you know, quite a bit less expensive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the other part of my brain says, hey, since this is such a lower price point, that becomes a more affordable area. Hey, a three-bedroom, two-bathroom condo, while it might not be as desirable as a three-bedroom, two-bathroom detached home, mm -hmm. hey, a family can afford that condo for $100,000, $200,000 less. Is that going to drive up those lower-end condos at a faster clip? That's a that's a really good question. And as you said, I don't know. Yeah, but it's some of the things I just yeah. I'm always curious about. I think I just I don't know. I think it is a really good question because we have focused on purchasing smaller single family homes and those have seen the biggest swing in comparison to the rest of Colorado Springs. And I know Lon puts out a really good chart um in regards to appreciation by square footage. Uh, basically segmented square footage uh, properties and the smaller ones saw the biggest swing because they're kind of getting pushed up uh, along with the rest of of the economy so I, I would imagine that probably is true but you know not sure. I think also a lot of the homes you've bought they've been around or below like the median price point right mm -hmm. I always think that's also yep. a good strategy if you're around or below the median price point that I think gives you better uh better opportunity and just you know lowers your downside yep i agree with that so just in summary that I, i've provided i still think that it's a good opportunity for investors to purchase buy and holds i think that um the longer you wait to buy if we're still seeing the same trajectory of rent rates and purchase price rates um you you know, in a few years from now, you might have missed the boat on that. So I think that it is important to consider purchasing sooner rather than later, um, assuming that the trends continue, which I believe that they probably will. I, I don't think that the appreciation rate on the sales price will continue at the same massive rate, which is just crazy. But I still think that it will outpace the rental increase. Yeah, I think we'll just accelerate and appreciate not as quickly yes but it's not sustainable like this for the long run exactly yeah because i mean i don't i didn't project out but i would imagine if you know 20 percent basically year after year at what point are you basically at a half million dollars for average and that's just not affordable so <laughs> exactly all right 
So going into the multifamily rental space, um, for purposes of this section, um, we're considering multifamily homes between two and four units. So we're still on the residential side of things, but um, more than a, more than a single family home. So as we mentioned previously, the overall vacancy rates for apartments um, is uh, is at zero for buildings with zero to eight units. So <laughs> I think that's still pretty interesting to to see. Um, and then something that we've looked at as well, uh, this is data from your castle, is that Q3 of last year compared to Q3 of, of the year prior, there's a 7% average price per unit that uh, experienced the increase. So as you can see from this trend, um, over the past couple of years, the price per unit has uh, more than doubled uh, since 2015, which is kind of wild because you figure if you have a fourplex and if the price per unit doubles, then you have four times that doubled value. So um, you're able to scale in, in value pretty quickly when you have more than one unit, which is, is kind of a cool component to this. And I mean, I think, I mean, for multifamilies, from the data you see down there, do rents and values generally pace each other a little bit better than the single family areas? Or have you, do you have enough data to segment those? I don't have enough hard data, but anecdotally and observationally, I have been seeing some really horrible returns on fourplexes that have been listed over the past month. I think only, I think I've only seen a couple be listed anyways. Um, and they were listed at a pro forma price opposed to an as is price or as is performance. So explain that and, and, and horrible. Like you said, what, what's horrible about <laughs> Because this is, yeah, caught my attention there. Okay. So yeah, I was looking at one property um, for some clients that it was, um, I think it was, what was it? 1% cash on cash as is for a fourplex. Um, which to me is just kind of wild because you're, you're buying it for the whole intent of being, you know, able to rent it. So. And there was, was there value up. So I hate going there and there throw was. the units. And yeah. So but, what was, cause I mean, what was, do you, do you remember like what, cause for, for those types of properties, I got, I'm less concerned about like the buy side yeah. numbers, but did like the, the, the pro forward numbers of, Hey, rehab and rent bumps did it, what were those like? So we could, we could very liberally get it to about a 3% cash on cash and a five cap. Okay. So to me, that's not a huge upside for the amount of work that you're going to have to go in. Well, that's just my personal opinion, but um, buyers felt the same way. So yeah, it's, it's just interesting. I think that um, I don't know if it's just people want um, a property to park their cash, which or take advantage of the, the low interest rates that we're currently experiencing. Um, and no one is selling their, their multi multiplexes is kind of fascinating. I'm on there every day. I have a buyer that's been looking for a fourplex and I'm on there every day and there's just nothing on there. It's just, it's wild. So if, if you have a fourplex, you're probably sitting on quite a bit of buyer demand uh, down there. So months of inventory, um, kind of the same old story here. Duplex, there was only four active listings um, on October 6th of 2020. 
4.7 months of inventory for that. Uh, there was four fourplexes, which is also 0.7 uh, months of inventory. And I think that uh, is important to, to highlight that um, in Colorado Springs, we mostly only see duplexes and fourplexes in terms of multifamily. Don't really see too many triplexes. There's mm-hmm. there's some downtown, but um, or converted, but they're they're kind of rare. So going into a duplex example, just kind of running through some of the cursory numbers, um, using twenty five percent as the down payment, purchase price of four fifty. We're all in for one hundred thirty two thousand. And um, since there's no initial repair cost, I assume this is a pretty pretty term. It was turnkey. Mm-hmm. Um. And then it was renting out for fifteen hundred aside. It was on the west side, which I, I know I've, I've mentioned before is pretty uh, desirable to tenants. They really like it just due to the proximity of uh, some of the the nature out there. And just kind of scrolling through that, we're looking at a four and a half cash on cash and a five and a half cap rate, which is pretty good. Yeah, I, I would I mean- take that. Yeah. And since you even put this together, I mean, cap rates, have they compressed more than that? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like in the uh, in the book, when it's published, we'll have to put some, <laughs> some notice on there. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but every month that passes, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is an example of a fourplex purchase price, $550. Um, I'm like, oh, wow, that was really good. You know, this is a couple months ago. <laughs> and again, a pretty turnkey product. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then central part of town, we're looking at about 4100 in rent for all the units. Counting for all your expenses and contingencies, we're at 5.6% cash on cash, 5.7 cap rate. Um, and as I mentioned over the ca- past couple months, we're looking at about a 5% cap pro forma. So that's just how tight things have gotten in this space. So it's pretty wild. And then just um, comparing the example between duplex and fourplex, um, I did break out price per unit for each of these cash on cash return cap rate. So it was interesting that they're for a cap rate perspective, they're pretty similar to one each, one another. So are you surprised by that for like a duplex and a fourplex? So that that doesn't yeah. surprise me. Oh really? Yeah. Interesting. Or, why? Why does that surprise? Like I don't know because you, you know you think about economies of scale. So I would think I don't know just that a fourplex would have a significantly higher cap rate. Um, you would think, right? I no. Yeah. See, I I don't think so because I mean because at least you know a lot of times you know. You know, duplex is often very popular with house hackers, so mm-hmm. those get bit up a lot more. And at least now we're having in Denver is a lot of the triplex and fourplexes won't pass like the FHA's self sufficiency test rule. Okay, I don't know if you guys are bumping up down there in mm-hmm. Colorado Springs yet, but we've we've hit a few brick walls on there, and it's okay. kind of like ah, oh, we're just gonna not go there anymore. Um, so I, I'm not surprised that the cap rates, because since those can both be owner occupied, I've always do those. Hey, those should be pretty similar. Okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah. I would say now, just based on observation, duplexes are a better option than fourplexes just because there's slightly more duplexes on the market than there are fourplexes. And the fourplexes get bit up pretty pretty quickly. Um, yeah, so just kind of summarizing that, uh, 
multifamilies do on average have a slightly better return than single family rentals. And again, it's really what the investor is looking for. Um, I know we just had a, a really good conversation with Rob Lynn, the property manager over at Milestone. And we are talking about some of the differences between managing a single family home and managing a multifamily. And, you know, there's a little bit more work on the owner or the property manager to take care of uh, some of those shared expenses like lawn, snow, that sort of thing on a multifamily, whereas on a single family, the, the tenant's responsible for that. So it's really just preference, in my opinion. I don't think there's a, a right or a wrong uh, option here. They're both both good options for sure. Then, of course, I guess one thing to highlight is that um, in the low interest rate times that we're in, um, I think that is contributing to the demand for multifamily because you're able to leverage more at that low rate. So I think that's really important to highlight. Ah, so now we're moving on to burring yes. in the springs. Now, we you did a really great in-depth podcast, I guess a couple months ago now, which I think we'll link to. Definitely listen to that. But what... First off, Burr is, is buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. Mm-hmm. And that's a term, I believe, bigger pockets, you know, they get credit for making it very popular and yep. giving a cool name for it. <laughs> uh, but so many people, that's what they want to do. Yeah. Because it, it just, it sounds amazing to go on there, buy, buy a property, go recycle your capital and just do it again and again and again mm-hmm. and be able to build a property uh, very quickly. Yep. So on paper, that sounds good. And then reality smacks them. In Colorado Springs, <laughs> yes, I would say so. Um, I'm a huge proponent of Burr. I yeah. think, I mean, it's it's an incredible strategy when you think about it. Um, I've done eight in Colorado Springs um, over the past couple of years, so I think that it's been really interesting looking from when we first started it to. Um, I know a couple of people probably heard you know my accidental Burr story to when it was more meaningful, and then as as time went on, when I was purposefully trying to burr properties, I noticed that margins were getting tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. And we would go from being able to cash out refinance pretty much everything that we put in to only part of it. Um, so just seeing that trend to where we are right now, I mean, I don't think that burr is a reasonable expectation to have in Colorado Springs for it just your typical investor like you or me. Um, You would have to be a full-time acquisitions uh, mode to really get a property that is burrable, in in my opinion, right now. When you say full-time acquisitions mode, paint me a picture on that. What do you mean? door knocking. Like, I just call you and you find me it, right? Sure. No, that's definitely not good. (laughs) Um, So, I I mean, honestly, people who have... um, direct mail set up, uh, door knocking, calling people. I don't, I don't even really know. I don't, uh, they have a lead generation business yes. to find motivated sellers. Yes. And, yeah. And that is a full-time job. Well, so, yeah, um, it's a full-time business with exactly overhead with a comma or two in there and <laughs> a couple employees. Exactly. So because I'm not in that realm, I'm not acquiring properties anymore at, at that level. Um, I think my time is probably better used doing my job where I'm at right now um, to to earn income to then buy properties, I think. And I think that's a great analogy for everyone out there listening to as well, since a lot of our clients, they are, they are not 
you know, full-time investors where they've got acquisitions teams and businesses, but hey, they've got their job, they've got their business or whatever, and they're still going to buy properties for, you know, more retirement planning standpoint. Mm -hmm. And it's a great question to always ask yourself out there as investors, hey, what's, can you burr? Absolutely, you can. But what does it take to get those properties in terms of time and expense? Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, it just becomes a lot of time, a lot of expense where it's like, hey, is that, is that worth it for me to do it? If your time is worth, you know, X amount per hours at your job or your business, you have to evaluate that and then have a realistic conversation. If you want to go out there and go into acquisition mode, you have to go out there and start a business and take those risks. And hopefully you get that reward within the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of comes down to just, I mean, I, I agree with the birth, one of the best strategies out there. Mm-hmm. The problem is it doesn't work in our, our super low inventory marketing conditions. And that's where great. I want to burr. I'm not going to change the market so I can burr, but I can change my strategy to go with the market. Exactly. And th- and that's a really important point I think people need to understand and, and digest. Yeah. And something to piggyback off of that, I know you and I have had a couple conversations about this. How long is it going to take for, if I start today and I'm going to find the perfect burr opportunity in Colorado Springs, how long is that going to take me? Is it going to take me a year to pull out? $50,000 in cash in my cash at refinance or could I have just worked for that year and earned $50,000 that I can then put down on a property um, as well. So it's just kind of considering those those options. So just kind of going into uh, we'll, we'll skip over some of the examples because as Chris mentioned we have a really in-depth podcast uh, that's linked in the show notes for this. I think that high level strategy, I mean, that, yeah. that's the punchline right there. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, that that's the important thing to know about burring right now. Yeah. So kind of jumping to yeah. my personal opinion on the current state of burr in Colorado Springs. So um, as we've, as we've highlighted, the, the market has gotten really tight over the past couple of years. You could go from full burr years ago to a very uh, partial burr to it's pretty much very difficult to, to find it at, at this point in the market. And so, you know, I, I'm taking to the slow burn strategy, which is just a, you know, I wanted to make up my own acronym too, because everyone else is doing it. So buy, renovate, rent, um, almost immediately, <laughs> and then sit and wait for the last two R's, which is refinance and repeat. So, so it should be burr, puh, burr, right? Buy, <laughs> rehab, rent, patience. Patience. <laughs> I think patience is such an underrated yeah. virtue right now. Uh-huh. Then refinance, then repeat. I like that. We can trademark yeah. that together. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so just basically the idea that if you bought a property in Colorado Springs today, two years ago, two years from now, whatever, based on the trajectory that we're looking at. um, And let me caveat this because I know um, I just want to make this abundantly clear. It needs to be cash flowing now and it needs to be cash flowing after you burr it. Um, It needs to have that cushion for sure. So um, this is not a hundred percent appreciation play. So just making, (laughs) making that clear for everybody. Um, but if you bought that property and just sat and wait, waited and managed it effectively and efficiently and just went about your life, in a few years from now, you're going to have enough equity just from market appreciation 
to then consider pulling some of that out and redeploying it for another towards another asset to perform as well um, on that one additionally. So uh, here's my little warning. The investor must make sure that the properties are cash flowing both before and after the slow burn. And I mean, the thing is, it's hard to know if it's going to cash flow after. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it doesn't cash flow, what that means is the market gave you a tremendous return on appreciation. Mm-hmm. Great. What's what's the, the other door to go through? You sell you 1031 yep. into a better rental property. Yep. And so don't worry about the future cash flow because, yeah, if you want to refinance, it has to make, make sense in that. But if it doesn't, hey, sell and trade up. It's a really good problem to think through. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's definitely something, you know, you and I do a lot with clients with like, you know, the return equity spreadsheet we have. Mm-hmm. That's something that we, we've put a lot of time into and specialize and say, cool, here's the options. Keep it, refinance it or sell and trade up. And we help you understand that too, because this is, again, this is a great problem. Mm-hmm. We want you to help facilitate in a couple of years when we have that conversation with. Exactly. Um, so just to kind of give an example, um, I know I've talked about... Uh, taking some of our properties that that we had bird previously years ago um, and then they appreciated quite a bit so for example I had done a, a full burr I think I had I don't know five thousand dollars left in it or something like that so we had a hundred and thirty one thousand dollar loan and then that property was appraised at 230 which um, is funny reading this now because uh, a comparable property just sold for like 270 <laughs> over the last couple of months. So, um, and then just using 75% loan to value requirements, we could take out another loan of 172,000 utilizing a cash out refinance. So we're taking home another $41,000. So if we had originally pulled out $40,000 during that original cash out, and then we took another 41,000. So we have basically negative cash in the property, which is amazing. Um, and it's still cash flowing uh, today. So um, very happy with, with kind of how that works out. Um, and then, so what did we do to the property since the first time we burned it? Nothing. We just managed it well, put good tenants in there and just let it sit for three years. You're patient. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I know you haven't heard this quote until recently, but I like it. It says, don't wait to buy real estate, buy real estate and wait. So I think that this really sums up what we're doing with that. Um, so just being able to use that, uh, cash out that we did, we can put that on a different property. I like that quote. Yeah. Is that yours or is that? No. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> I can't take credit for it. I don't I don't know who said it though. Okay. <laughs> um so yeah, so just putting 25% down on a couple rent ready properties. We we cash out refinanced um three properties that we had previously burned and were able to buy two properties, three units with those proceeds. So, um and everything is cash flowing right now. So, even though we have a little bit more tied up in debt, we were able to take a cash flowing asset, redeploy the equity into another cash flowing asset. So now I have even more cash flow. So that's kind of the power of that. So just kind of going into some of the risks of the strategy, don't rely on appreciation. If this technique works out, great. If it doesn't, okay, well, you still have a cash flowing property that, yeah, you might have some cash that's stuck in it you might have some equity that you were hoping to get but you can't quite pull out yet 
maybe just wait a wait a few more years. Um, either way, if you bought it right today, you won't have too many issues in a couple of years from now. And, and then, the other, the other, I mean, like risk assumption on there is, um, what about interest rate risk? Yeah. So that's, that's a really good one. So, um, we are in a very low interest rate environment right now. I don't know what the interest rate's going to be in two, three years from now. It might not be worth refinancing. Probably higher if I had to take yeah, it. Yeah. I guess it would yeah. be higher than lower. Exactly. So if we're at three and a half now and we're at five, two years from now, it might not make sense to do that. And then as Chris said, maybe that's when you evaluate doing a 1031, um, doing some other option to it. Or you do some seller financing and sell it that way. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing I wanna highlight, you know, again, you, 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 Jenny did a great job. You, you buy a property that, that makes sense today in the current market conditions and for your returns. And then we have our projections for three to five years out. Mm -hmm. But those are projections and they, <laughs> don't always go the way we project and they, a lot of times they don't mm -hmm. then you have different options on there hey you just hold it and keep it or you refinance it, or you sell and trade up or hey interest rates go up you sell it and you do seller financing and then you go that way there's always options that's yes. what we want to stress is there's always options as long as your property makes sense today mm -hmm. and you can you can hold on to it which i think leads into one of the next subjects of, of your reserves exactly yep so i won't get too into the um ltv uh, requirement that I, I am self-imposed. We'll, we'll go into that in another section. Um, but just kind of going over the burr versus the slow burn. Um, as I mentioned, nothing's going to beat the burr strategy, in my opinion. It's just a, the king of real estate strategies. And um, But I think that you need to kind of adjust for market conditions. So if you think about a bell curve, what is the highest probability of success somewhere right in that middle point there are opportunities for burr but that's in the shallow part of that curb so just aim for something in the middle um don't shoot for that home run shoot for a base hit so um and then you often kind of hear saying putting 20 percent down on the property is not good investing um i love burr but it's just not realistic today to, to do that. And I see nothing wrong with putting 20% down on a property. It's still investing. Um, and you're still going to reap all the benefits of a real estate investment. Um, so just, you know, kind of considering that. And then just based on what Chris and I were, were saying earlier, if you wait a year to find that perfect Burr property, well, prices have gone up and you've missed out on opportunity costs if you buy something that performs well today, instead of waiting at year, you know, you've missed out on a ton of opportunity. So I think that's also something to consider as well. So again, for the reserves and contingencies, you we did you did an in-depth podcast on here. So we'll link to that or just go through the history and you'll that's the title of podcast, I think, as well. But give us like just the the really high level quick executive summary for for what if I'm buying a property where mm -hmm. I'm putting, you know, hey, it's $100,000 down to close on the property. How much money should I have in the bank for reserves and contingencies? Okay, so I I am very uh, kind of a stickler for this. So I, I, I will be a little preachy about it, but there's three layers of, of things that you need to consider. So 
One is vacancy. How low can you make your rent go to avoid a vacancy? Because the vacancy is what is paying for your operating expenses. If that layer gets unraveled, you need to have six months of contingency or contingency funds in your bank account per property. Um, I, I'm pretty steadfast on holding to that. Mm-hmm. And then if that layer gets unraveled, the last thing you need is equity. If you're kind of waving the you know white flag at that point, if you had to liquidate your real estate holdings, you're in a state of dire emergency. If you have equity, that will save you from having to bring money to the table. And you can sell and, and mm-hmm. walk without a short sale or foreclosure, again, right in the five, ten, thirty thousand dollar check. Exactly. That you presumably don't have since you've exhausted your yeah. reserves. So <laughs> Yeah, I think the way yeah. you layered out was very good. So I would definitely recommend um listen to that podcast in depth and also read the chapter because that's it's a very good strategy. Like it's it, it's not sexy, mm-hmm. but it's one of those things where like that's what that's what you know allows you to stay in the game, but mitigate any downside risk from like personal stuff, market stuff, property issues, anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I, I love the way you outlined this with the, with his three three tiers, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And then, all right, this is a pretty pretty quick section right here. Fix and flip and fix and list in Colorado Springs. The short answer for fix and flip is we can't help you. So um, we've already mentioned that inventory is extremely tight. Um, I think in order to be a successful flipper, that is your job. You have to have marketing. You have to have crews. Um, I mean, you have to have funding. That That is your full-time job. So. And you have to act usually very quickly within a couple of days. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I do think that the fix and list strategy, and there's nothing different between fix and list in Colorado Springs versus in Denver. Um, in my opinion, it's just different markets. But that that strategy, and I know you and Lauren have a pretty detailed guide on that, um, so I won't go into it too much. But it's just an interesting uh, way to take advantage of the appreciation that we've seen, um, and it's it's um, beneficial from the standpoint in that. Um, if you're able to take uh, advantage of the appreciation that we've seen, and then the seller has owned their home for a number of years, you can take advantage of Section 121 exclusion. So for the gain of your, your the sale of your principal residence. So I think that's kind of interesting um, concept to be able to marry uh, the 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 two strategies together. Um, I know a lot of people do live in flips, but this is. Probably more so um, if you want to just kind of move into a different property is probably less purposeful, but is still a really good option for people. See, I, I go more, I think this is one of where our strategies differ a little bit, because I'm a lot more like on like the slow burn. Mm-hmm. I see like doing that, hey, you buy a property, so it makes a good rental today. Yeah. Give it three, five, seven years as that it pops, it appreciates all that stuff. I think that's a great opportunity to go on there and then do a fix and list on that three, five, seven year time frame. Oh, okay. go on there and do a, a delayed flip for a lack of better words. Okay, and then because you always get top dollar by selling a a finished product. Yeah. to an owner occupied buyer. Yeah, you know, which is not us. We're not investors, but hey, flip probably they they got their job, they got their family, they just want to buy a place in their school district that works for the commute and be done with it. Mm-hmm. Flip that property and then maximize your proceeds and then. 
uh, 1031 another property and of course depending on the property location depends hey it might just be a light cosmetic update hey mm-hmm. paint carpet some new flooring refresh from the kitchen or might be a full you know 30 40 50 thousand dollar job but that's something where you know as your property grows you know like we can help you with that identify hey what's that sweet spot for yeah. hey, if you if you invest a dollar we hopefully get three dollars back on the on the sale proceeds yeah that's that's really interesting i i guess i hadn't considered applying it to a rental property that oh really for a slow flip no because um we had a client in colorado springs that the you know the family had lived there for seven years and they wanted to move into a nomad property and so we did the fix and list strategy so now they've made quite a bit of gain but now they don't have to pay taxes on it because they lived there for two of the last five years so interesting approach to, to look at it both ways as, as an option and but in just both. another option to keep yeah on there. yeah because i've had clients ask me they're, they're house hacker nomading where should yeah. i stay here for two years to take care of that exclusion and my advice is like no go in there and and buy multiple properties mm-hmm. and then you know 1031 in five years rather than staying there two years to accumulate more yeah yeah that's really cool yeah they were able to cash out they bought a nomad and now they have enough for um probably one or two more single family home purchases so that's kind of how they they structured it. So that's that's what I love about real estate is that there's so many different ways that oh, yeah. you can strategize and just see what works best for the situation and for um you know the market conditions. So that's awesome. So just kind of went through an example on that. So you guys can read that on the in the book. And then house hacking in Colorado Springs. Um, we have a podcast dedicated to this as well. We'll link to that in the show notes, but kind of the uh, synopsis of that is Colorado Springs offers really good house hacking options for investors. I think that depending on maybe where in the city you want to live or what strategy you want to implement will kind of help steer um, either either way for that. And I mean, that's something I would say definitely listen to that podcast. And I know there's some things to, you know, about, you know, certain areas based on the way the houses were built and zoning codes or something you can like you can split the house up and mm-hmm. there's some really good opportunities to to almost make an up down duplex yep um and also some areas that make a lot of sense for like room by room rentals mm-hmm. so if you guys are house hacking reach out to jenny down because she is she knows all those nuances yeah so it's definitely a really good opportunity and same same concept as up in Denver. House hacking is an awesome way to get into real estate investing yeah, yeah I, I tell everyone if you're if you're in a position in your life where you can go in there, you know, whether it's no matter how sec, if mm-hmm. you're in a position where you can, you know, just based on your lifestyle, hey, moving in and moving out a few times, do it. It is the best use of your capital because you get such high leverage. Mm-hmm. Like the long-term effects of it are amazing. So, yeah. all right, Jenny, well, this is great. Any final thoughts before we wrap up here? Because, I mean, this was very detailed. People can always check out the show notes. They can always reach out to you to help figure out where the market is currently (laughs) and then also match it to their goals and their, you know, current personal financial situation as well. Mm -hmm. So they can fill out the form on the website or just email Jenny, J-E-N-N-Y and EnvisionREA.com, right? Yep, exactly. Jenny, this is great. Thank you so much. Thank you.